As we continue our worship, we ask for your blessing on our time and your word. We know, Lord, that you've promised us that your word would never return to you void. It is our desire, Lord, that our time and your word would be beneficial and profitable. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us, Father, to be able to understand the truths that are here and to apply them to our lives. We ask, Lord, for your strength and your grace to do so. As we desire, Father, to be more like your Son, Christ, so that our lives, every facet of our lives, will be lived in a way that honors you and brings glory to your name. We thank you, Father, again for this time, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and once again I'll read verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Over the last several weeks we have talked about suffering and why Paul says what he says and the importance of how he says what he says concerning suffering. And I want to focus this morning on verse 11 as he speaks about prayer because it struck me as to how it is worded. Again, he says in the English Standard Version that we read, he says, you also must help us by prayer. Just the way that that is worded immediately indicates that Paul does not view prayer as being just some kind of a ritual thing that we do to be polite. He's not just saying something that sounds spiritual. Let me read to you this phrase from other translations and we get a better uh, grasp of what is being expressed here. The NIV says, as you help us by your prayers. The New American Standard, you also joining and helping us through your prayers. The Complete Jewish Bible says, and you must add your help by praying for us. In the Holman translation it says, and you can join in helping with prayer for us. And again in the Amplified it says, while you also cooperate by your prayers for us, helping and laboring together with us. So the phrase that's used there, must help, or working together for us, Paul is asking these believers to strive together with him. The word that's used there is a word that is usually associated with struggling with great effort. So he is asking them to struggle, to put forth this great effort in praying for his rescue. So there's several things that are implied by this, but it is implied through the Word of God, so I think we can, in a sense, kind of take it to the bank. Paul is affirming the incredible power of intercessory prayer. We know that God is not looking for self-sufficient Christians, there's no such thing, but he is looking for those who are absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God. In fact, the verb that is used here is a rare one, which again indicates that prayer is not like a picnic, but it calls for persistence and effort. So there is an acknowledgement, an applied acknowledgement here, that prayer can be hard. 
that, that we must be intentional when it comes to praying for others. That it doesn't, natu- it doesn't necessarily just come naturally, that we must pay attention to it. And then also what's added here is, the, the verbiage is, is that Paul sees their praying for him as being a very real help. There's, there's this idea that's included that there's almost a cooperating with them or a working together to work through this conflict that is brought about by their praying for Paul. John MacArthur says this, he says, Intercessory prayer is crucial to the expression of God's power and sovereign purpose. In this regard, Paul wanted the faithful Corinthians to know he needed their prayers then and in the future. Prayer's duty is not to change God's plan, but to glorify him and give thanks for them. Paul was confident that God's sovereign purpose would be accomplished, balanced by the prayerful participation of believers. Suffering, then, is sent to show us that we are not individuals living all alone in life. We are members of a family, we are members of a body, and we need each other. When you have a difficulty or a trial, share it with others so that they can pray with you. For many prayers will bring great deliverance. That is what the verse says. In answer to many prayers, God will send a blessing which will awaken thanksgiving in many, many hearts. So again, verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf. So that's the reason that Paul gives for his request for prayer, for sharing our needs with each other, for enlisting the aids of others in praying for us through times of pressure. We ought to be ready to respond to those who are going through pressure with prayer for them ourselves. That is the way that the Christian community ought to respond to stress and pressure, to difficulties and trials and disasters. God has sent them. God has allowed them to come as opportunities that you might learn, that I might learn. Again, this amazing secret of inner strength, inner comfort, inner peace, that can keep our hearts quiet even though you are going through troubled times. Again, in the Amplified, it reads, Thus the lips of many persons turned toward God will eventually give thanks on our behalf for the grace, the blessing of deliverance granted us at the request of the many who have prayed. The idea is that there is a a strengthening that takes place in the lives of believers as we pray for each other and we see God answer those prayers, all of us giving thanks to God for what has been done. Our faith is strengthened. Our hearts are encouraged. So part of the process of you and I growing as believers is absolutely spending time in the Word of God. Feeding on the Word of God, being nourished on what it says, understanding um, what it's teaching us, the precepts that we are to follow, the confidence that it gives us in, in the God that we worship. But along with that are our times together. And this is not, again, just some kind of a psychological thing that because we're together with many people, we're going to naturally be encouraged, which that will take place. But it's much more involved than that. There is this assumed thing that Paul is talking about here that we will do. That we will follow his example by sharing the afflictions that we're going through. So that we may pray for each other. But not then that it ends there. 
so that we then can look forward to how God's going to answer that prayer. Then when God answers that prayer and that, that, that answer is shared with others, because we had prayed for that, because we had done it together, we are all encouraged by what has just taken place. That, that kind of goes then in the arsenal so that when you and I go through times of difficulty, we also have the shared experience of what the Bible speaks about when it comes to the comfort of God and the actions of God in our lives. We're not just saying, well, I've read the Bible that God answers prayer. No, it goes beyond that. It's not just, oh, I believe that God answers prayer because the Bible says that he does. That's true, but that then is strengthened in our lives because we have lived it. And we are living it out together. So the blessing then again is not just for the individual whose prayer has been answered or who has been delivered. It is for all of us as we participate together. We are happy together. We are enjoying this together. We are encouraged together. The same way in a family, when a young man or a young woman finds the love of their life and they're going to get married, the whole family rejoices together for that one's happiness. They understood that, you know, as you kind of travel through life, that's, that's the next step that's coming up, and they are eagerly anticipating how is that going to happen? Who is it going to be? And then when all that takes place, everyone is genuinely happy. You don't find individuals normally, if it's a good, healthy family, you don't find people saying, well, I know I'm supposed to be happy because, you know, Junior is getting married. No, there is a genuine happiness that is experienced and felt. So this engages the whole person, and this is what God wants for us in our lives as believers. If you take the main thoughts of verses 10 and 11 together, what what we get is this. On him, which is Christ, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. I just want to emphasize Paul's view towards prayer. That That again, it is not just a religious activity. It is doing something. And the reason why I say that is because, and maybe this has been true for a long time, but it tends to be this way for for some, maybe for many. And when it comes to difficulties in our lives, as Americans, what we normally do is we try to figure out how to handle it. That's not necessarily wrong. But we look around at our resources, whether you're doing an evaluation you had or whatever it is, we're going to tough this thing out, we're going to get through this. That's kind of the attitude that we bring. And the idea is, is that if all those things fail, then we'll pray. If someone else is going through a hard time, we sometimes think, yeah, they'll get through it. I know them. They're tough. I know them. You know, they're resourceful. They're clever. Whatever it happens to be. And if things don't work out, say, well, I guess we should pray for so-and-so, man. They're really going through a hard time. You know, and so we tend to pray for those things that seem to be, or, or that are, are obviously above whatever their threshold is of their own ability to, to recover something or to resolve something. Here the idea is, is that prayer is not the last resort because, you know, nothing else works, and so I guess we'll pray. The idea is that when it comes to this, this idea, this motivation we have, that we want to do something, we want to do something tangible, that's exactly what this is. Our thoughts, our attitude needs to change when it comes to this. And, and again, that I think erases, and I think most of us know this by experience, it erases the idea that it really isn't doing much because it's easy, anybody can pray. 
Well, if it's easy and anybody can pray, why don't they? Because it's not easy. For whatever it seems, it seems to be almost against our nature to pray. What's in our nature is to do something physical. And I'm not, again, I'm not diminishing that idea. But it's not that we are doing something physical apart from God. It is always inclusive where, where God is only turned to from the beginning, seeking his wisdom and his strength and his blessing. God moves through our prayers to accomplish great good in the lives of his people. So there's four things I want to look at. This, this, these aren't the only four things, but there's four things about prayer I want us to look at. So if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for just a moment. So along with what Paul says, here in 2 Corinthians, we know that the Bible explicitly urges believers to engage in the ministry of prayer. In recommending prayer, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. When he says that he urges, the verb urge means a call or a summon to someone to engage in an activity or a course of action. It can be rendered either beseech or exhort or as it is here, urge. It is a summons to a course of action that the speaker deems highly desirable as needing to be carried out. So Paul's words then are an appeal to believers to voluntarily do what is being requested. The persistent practice of intercession cannot be forced by an outward command, but again must be prompted by an inner conviction of its importance and the crying need for it. So that's why it's important for us to move beyond just this idea that God has commanded it. Yes, he has. But we must be convinced of the importance of prayer. We must be convinced by that. And it seems that at least for some of us, at some point in our life, we become convinced because our needs are so great. Something, some event takes place. So we find ourselves in some circumstance that is obvious to, to us beyond our own ability and at that moment we realize how much we need God. When we realize at that moment what we, what we need to make sure that we do as we contemplate that, as we think about that, is to recognize that that need has always been great whether you and I have the resources or not. It's always been great. Because even if you have the resources, you may not be exercising the wisdom that is necessary to deal with that situation correctly. Again, that's why Jesus uh, on the Sermon on the Mount mentioned about removing the log out of your eye before you help someone remove the speck out of their eye. Because it says when you read through that, so you can what? See clearly. Just because you have the resources doesn't mean that uh, you're going to use them the correct way or use them uh, at the right moment. We need the wisdom of God. So again, there is this explicit urging given by Paul, command, if you would, that we engage in this. Secondly, if you turn to Matthew chapter 9, we'll see that Christ commanded his disciples to intercede for the lost. And I wanted us to, to focus on this for just a few moments. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to read this from the NIV. So if you're following along, you say, wait a minute, my, my Bible has a different word. That's, you'll now know why. Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 36, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So as Christ looks out in the crowd, he has compassion. This is a crowd of non-believers. These non-believers are being harassed. These non-believers are helpless. They are not being shown the way. They're not being given the truth uh, concerning God. And so Jesus, the heart of Jesus is moved with compassion. And what he's teaching his disciples is that the need is overwhelmingly great. They need individuals armed with the truth to come and to explain to them the truth. And so the way you resolve this is pray to the Lord that he will what? Send these workers. Jesus wanted to stir his disciples by calling his attention, or their attention, to the vastness of the harvest and the scarcity of laborers. He commanded to pray for more workers to be sent into the field. This call to prayer for thrusting forth for the thrusting forth of God sent laborers into his harvest, again, is not limited to missionaries, it's not limited to pastors, it's all of us carry the message of Christ. This is what all of us are to be doing. God has a place for every member of his church in the reaping of the whitening of the fields. Thirdly, related to this, Believers are called to engage in intercessory prayer because it gives them the amazing privilege of working with God in the ingathering of the harvest. It is, again, for our benefit. We see this on a, I guess we can illustrate it on a small scale. When your kids were young, or, or when your grandchildren are young, and you're going to go do something, and you ask them if they want to come and help, it's not because we need their help. Usually if you enlist their help, that means that whatever you're about to do is going to take now longer. And something bad may happen. You know, we're going to go feed the dog. And they want to help. And they may end up spilling the food all over the house before they ever get it to where you're supposed to be placing it. Or they might trip and fall with the water bowl, and there you go. Now we have this huge mess, and everything is going to take four times longer than before. But why are we engaging their help? Well, A, it brings pleasure to us, right? It makes us happy. It makes them happy. They love it. In fact, we wish when they were 16, they had the attitude when they were 6. Wouldn't you sell your 60-year-old son? You want to help dad with the yard work? Yes! We don't get that too often. What you get is, it's not my week. <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. But the idea is that God wants to include us in all of this. Again, in verse 38 of, of Matthew 9, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore it is not work is into the harvest field. Again, the, word, the words convey not, only, convey not only the contents of the disciples' petition, but again also the, indicates the anticipated response of God to their petition. The words may more literally be rendered in order that he may send workers into his harvest. The Holy Spirit is pleased to send forth laborers into his harvest fields in response to our fields. In response to our fields. In response to our prayers. God could send forth needed workers without our prayers. But in his loving purpose to relate his redemptive working to us and our intercessory work of prayer, God does not desire to work independently in his ingathering of the harvest, but to have his people work with him. That's what God wants to do. He wants to include us in his work. It's never because God needs us. It's because he wants to, the blessing is ours in all of this. The joy is ours in all of this. 
And it's not, it's not something that diminishes the individual. When you ask your grandchild or, or your young child to help you do a chore, they don't say, oh, okay, I, I know you're only doing this to make me feel like I'm important and I'm part of the family. Now, I don't really need that kind of psychological help, you know, or encouragement. I mean, my favorite shows on TV, you know, I got stuff to do. That doesn't happen, right? No one's, they're not thinking like that. And sometimes maybe, maybe it's in our arrogance we're thinking somehow that God is, you know, kind of downplaying to us. So come along. It's not what's going on. There's a, a genuine love for us to be with us. Because he is so great and marvelous. He wants to include us in his joy. That's what he wants. Incl- including us in his joy brings great joy in our life. And that's what he's doing for us. So again, God does not desire to work independently in bringing people to himself. He wants his people to work with him. God works to communicate his will to his people, then delights to answer their prayers for the accomplishment of his will. How encouraging is it when you are praying for someone over some situation and you hear how God has answered And you know that it was in direct response, not that you were the only one praying, but it was in direct response to to prayer, to our prayer. It's just a great thing. It's a motivating thing. It makes you want to pray for more stuff. And I don't mean stuff for yourself. You know, it's it's for God to accomplish these things in the lives of other people. It's, It's just a great thing. It's almost like you have the ability to sabotage someone else's life for their good. Remember I told you the story one time my dad was sharing Christ with this with this uh, with a soldier. He was this guy was had all kind of issues, and it was multiplied by drinking, and he was really struggling with the gospel. He understood it. He just there was no desire to turn his life over to God because he didn't want his life to change. And and, and my dad would kind of they got got into an impasse. I don't know what caused my dad to say this because he didn't say this very often, hardly anybody. And he said, well, that settles it. He says, I'm just going to pray that God will take sleep from you until you turn your life over to him because you know that's what you need to do. And then my dad left. I didn't know any of this until a few days later, but this guy, he called the house. It was 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And he is pleading for my dad to come see him immediately. Because my dad was still active military at the time, he was able to go on base and go to this guy's barracks, wherever he was staying. And, and the guy looked terrible. He hadn't slept in three days. Just, I mean, could not sleep. And he said, you have to help me. And so my dad just calmly took him to the gospel again. And, and they discussed it. And my dad said, the guy kept interrupting. I'm ready, I'm ready. And they said, No. I'll make sure you understand this. And so he went through and made sure that he understood that he was separated from God, that it was his sin, and, you know, all those things. And, 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 and the guy, he, he immediately gave his life to the Lord and just was confessing sin. And my, and my dad said, you just tell that there's this, there this relief just kind of just seeping out of this man's body. And then after they finished, my dad asked him a few questions, and then my dad prayed. And my dad said that his prayer was interrupted by this young man snoring. He just dropped off to sleep. And so my dad, you know, covered with a blanket and he left. The guy was in church the next week and, you know, kind of shared his testimony and it was just the greatest thing. So when you experience that, you go, oh, wow. Who else doesn't need to sleep? 
right? You know, you want to you want to interfere with their life, you know. And so, I, what I would say, I would preface that with that if you're going to do that, make sure it's someone you've been sharing the gospel with. Don't just do it arbitrarily because they have no idea why they can't sleep. Uh, you want to make sure that this is a response to what God is doing in their lives. But this is kind of the idea: is that God answers prayer. He really does do that. I read this book, um, I was reading a book by a missionary which contains several uh, articles by other missionaries and there was one article uh, out of the entire book, it's the only one that I really remember and this missionary was talking about prayer and why it seems to be so difficult for believers to prayer uh, to pray and he said that, that he had come to the conclusion based on his experience with believers and also looking at his own life that there are two main reasons not that they're the only ones, and not that they apply to everybody, but there are two main reasons that he observed as to why Christians didn't pray. He said they're both very disturbing. He said one is, we don't really care. And in the end, you don't really care. If all of a sudden your child or your grandchild was struck with a debilitating disease, and their chances of living weren't good, how hard would it be to motivate you to pray? It wouldn't be difficult at all. You're motivated because you love and care for that person. It would be easy for you to pray for them every day. Multiple times a day. Because you care. And so then when it comes to other things that we just kind of... It, that may be it. And we, ask, we need to ask the Lord to soften our hearts. So that we will pray as we ought to pray. But he said, this, he said the second thing might be even more universal. And that is, in the end, many believers don't think it'll really make much of a difference. That whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And all he could say was, just shame on us for thinking that. Remember, it pleases God to work through our prayers. We, even though we know everything depends upon Him, we should pray like it all depends upon us. And plead with God to move and act in the lives of these individuals. Because it makes a difference. How often are we guilty of really unbelief? We just, you know, we, we pray for someone for a couple of weeks. And part of that is we're human beings. The flesh is weak, and there's, there's things we forget. We don't intend to stop praying for certain people. We don't intend to, but it happens sometimes all too often. But you know, we should recognize what our weaknesses are and prepare for that. That's why some people have different kinds of notes or, or places they put things to remind them whether it's who to pray for or to pray. We go ahead and, and start making up for those deficiencies we know that we possess. But, we, but it's important that we, that we not lose hearts because we have to pray for something or someone or some event for more than two weeks or more than two months. We've heard stories in the past of individuals who prayed for maybe the salvation of a child or a grandchild for 30 years on a regular basis. Whether that's twice a week, once a week, four times a week, I don't know what that means oftentimes in those stories. But still, when you do anything like that for 30 years, that's pretty incredible. Refusing to give up on that individual and going to the only person they know that can do anything about it and continue to do so. Do we think they're wasting their time? Or are they doing something? I think they're doing something. And they are doing it in faith. 
Because sometimes in those stories you hear how those individuals go to their grave and whatever they're praying for hasn't materialized. Sometimes it happens shortly after they die, maybe a while after they die, but it doesn't happen in their lifetime. Just like with Abraham, remember some of the promises that God made to Abraham, they weren't fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. And so the idea is that we pray in faith believing in God. Through intercessory prayer, or through intercessory praying, God offers to each of us as believers the glorious opportunity of working with Him and fulfilling His redemptive purposes. I came across this quote from a pastor, which I think is, I just thought it was very, very powerful. So let me read this to you. The power of prayer differs from all the powers of the world. It is the only power that cannot be used for evil. And the more I thought about it, the more amazing that was to me. Of all the power that exists, the power of prayer is the only one that cannot be used for evil. Every other power of the world can be used for evil or for good. But the greatest of all powers, prayer, can only be used for good. Some of you may be, may be familiar with this story, or stories like this. But in 1872, D.L. Moody made a short trip to England for rest. He had no intention of preaching while he was there. While he was in London, a minister saw him and asked him to preach in his church that coming Sunday morning and evening. And so Moody said that he would. The morning service was marked by a smug, stolid drowsiness, that's how he described it, making him regret his acceptance to preach. At the evening service, he gave an evangelistic message and asked all those present who would decide to receive Christ to rise, and hundreds did so. He was surprised. And so he thought, oh, they have clearly misunderstood what I've said. So he asked them to be seated. He then repeated his invitation much more clearly. The response was the same again. And at that meeting, 400 were received into membership of that church. Moody did a lot of thinking about that event. And he began to make inquiries as to the secret, as to what had happened. Now, I don't know how he did this, but finally he learned of a little girl named Marianne Adlard, I believe is her name. She was bedridden. She had read about Moody's work in Chicago. And she put that report under her pillow. She began to pray that God would send Moody to her church for a revival. When her older sister returned from that lifeless morning service and had told Marianne that a man named Moody from Chicago had preached, the bedridden sister asked not to be disturbed that afternoon so that she might give herself to unhindered prayer. As she prayed, she said assurance filled her heart that God had heard her prayer for the revival of their church. Learning about this little girl, Moody visited her. During the visit, he asked, she asked Moody to write his name in her birthday book, promising him that she would pray for him as long as they both lived. The visit left D.L. Moody with a deepened and abiding sense of the importance of the ministry of Christian intercession. Both scripture and church history establish that it is a vital ministry in the furtherance of God's redemptive work. God clearly uses intercessory prayer in the implementation of his will. It is God's way of getting things done. So I remind m many of you, as all of us get older, and as we have less energy for life, 
and maybe less ability to do things for God, I would encourage you to begin to engage a little more in the ministry of prayer. Some of us may hesitate or find it difficult because we're not doing something or because we want to do more or perhaps you think it's not really going to make a difference. When little Marianne was praying alone in her room, what assurance did she have that anything would take place? None except the fact that she believed in the God of the Bible with all of her heart, mind, and soul. And she proved it by spending that time, hours in prayer, and then we see what took place. That's just absolutely amazing. And there are many of those kinds of stories, and probably, I'm sure there are many, many more that no one will ever hear about, except maybe when we're in heaven, because there was no one who was kind of in the know as to what was going on. The fourth thing, and this is the last one, We should engage in intercession or in in intercessory prayer because of God's response to our failure to do so. There's two Old Testament prophets I want to read from, Isaiah and Ezekiel. In the book of Isaiah, let me read to you from uh, chapter 59, beginning of verse 15. It says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intercede. So he's not only appalled there's no justice, he's appalled that there's no one to intercede. Isaiah here is recounting a time in Israel's history when righteousness was in recession and evil was running around triumphant. The moral degradation of the nation distressed God, but in addition, he was, in addition to that, he was concerned about the absence of the human intercessor. God was deeply disturbed that there was no one ready to step in between himself and sinful Israel to plead on their behalf. He was amazed that there was no one like Abraham of old who took the place of an intercessor before God on behalf of sinful Sodom about to be destroyed. I believe in that principle. I remember talking to an inmate once when I was the chap of the jail. I had gotten a call that morning from an elderly lady And she said her grandson was uh, there incarcerated, and she'd heard about this discipleship program that we had, and she wanted him to be moved into it. And so I said, well, I'll go talk to him, but I can't make him. He has to ask to come into the program. And she said, okay. And I said, I'll call you back. I'll see him this afternoon. So I went to go see him. When he went to go see him, uh, he wasn't too pleased. He didn't want to see me. It was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He was still sleeping. Uh, but I said, I said, I got, I've got to talk to you. You know, kind of yelling because of the dorm he was in. And so he, he got up, and so I told about the program and asked if he wanted to, to come in. And of course, he was even now more disturbed that I was talking to him because I don't want to go in there. I said, okay. I said, well, I just, I, I promised your grandmother. I talked to her this morning that I would talk to you, and I gave her my word that I would call her back. So I'll let her know what you said. <laughs> because, well, wait a minute. I said, well, what? My grandmother. I said, yeah, she called me, she called me in the office, and, I, and then I said to her whatever her name was, and he goes, okay, I'm coming. So he came. Well, he really wasn't a willing participant, but he was there. And um, his, his grandmother was sick, and uh, he was there for a couple of months, and she ended up passing away. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a rough week for him, and, and so I waited a little while. 
And it was probably about two weeks after his grandmother died, and I called him in, and I said, uh, he asked me how he was doing and all of that. And I said, the main reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned for you. He said, I'm fine. I said, no, I don't mean this is because your grandmother died. I, I said, because of what I, I now, what I now know is missing in your life. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I'm talking to your grandmother. I said, it was pretty clear that your grandmother has been praying for you. I'm assuming that you're probably alive because your grandmother's been praying for you. She's been interceding to God on your behalf. I was just curious, is there anyone else in your family you think is going to pray for you every day? He said, well, no, I never thought about it. I said, well, there's probably not. I said, so if I was you, I would, you need to be much more careful in how you're living. Because there's no one praying for you. I said, I'll talk to you later. And I left. Good news is, about three weeks later, he became a believer in Christ. He said all he could think about was that there was no one praying for him. And he had a hard time excuse me, dealing with that. Made him relive a lot of the conversations he had with his grandmother, who had faithfully shared the gospel with him, which is good news. And he came into Christ. In Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel wrote of God's similar concern. It says, I looked for a man among, whom, uh, among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land. So I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them. So I think that when we look at this, when in view of God's amazement at the lack of such intercessors, and remember that in each of these two passages, he was amazed that there wasn't one. He didn't say I was disappointed that it was just a small number. He didn't say I was looking for a few. He was disappointed there was not even one that was doing so. So I, I sometimes wonder how is it can we, the people of God, allow ourselves to be negligent? It seems that perhaps we get too caught up in our own suffering. And we're not praying as we ought to pray. Remember as Paul finishes this this little section on suffering, this is what he ends with. And when it comes to the very real suffering that others go through, who is praying for them? Are you and I doing all that we can do for others? Not are you sending them money, not are you, are you running by to check on him, and those things may be good, but are you doing the hard thing, the most important thing? Are you praying for them? It is hard work. There is no guarantee that God will answer your prayer in the affirmative in three days. It may be a while, but it is worth to keep praying. God is looking for those who are, and it pleases Him to answer our prayers and to work through them. We should vow to work together for His purposes by praying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful again to you, Lord, for your love for us and your kindness. Father, the things that Paul writes sometimes are just amazing as it gets right down to the nitty-gritty of life. Explains to us, Father, the simple but profound things that we need to be aware of and that need to be incorporated in the way we live. Father, we, we all may not be aware of all who have prayed for us in the past. But surely there have been those who have 
We might be a little disappointed to find out that it's only been a few. We are grateful, Father, for the few who are faithful. Help us, Father, to be a part of that group, to faithfully pray for others. Because there are those, Father, that no one else is praying for. We know, Lord, that we love our children and our grandchildren. We know, Lord, that no one will love them as much as we do. So if anyone's going to pray for them faithfully, it should be us. Before we ever ask others to pray for our children and our grandchildren, it's important that we are praying for them. And then, Father, when others ask us to pray for their situations, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be more in tune with, with what they're asking us to do. And that as we say yes to them, that we will follow through on that. And as we pray, that we will look forward to how you're going to answer those prayers. That we may rejoice together. That we may be encouraged that you are a God who is actively involved in our lives and the lives of others. We thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to ourselves. How horrible that would be. And we do want to lift before you, Father, any who may be here today who don't know Christ. We pray for them, Lord, and ask that your spirit would convict them of the need of Christ. Put a spotlight on the emptiness in their life or the loneliness or the frustrations of life. That they would recognize that there are no solutions for them. No way to really permanently get themselves out of the situation they're in much less be delivered of how they feel. And we ask, Lord, they would come to you. And we ask that not only would we be reminded to pray for them, but to be willing to be used by you in whatever way necessary to help them understand the gospel, to believe in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have not given up on us. Help us to be resilient like you. We do ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.